Take that little section out where I just dropped the silence. Yeah, where I lost all of the words. Hello and welcome to Museopunks episode 14. My name is Jeff and I'm here with my wonderful co-host Suze. Hey Suze, how is it going over there in Australia? Uh, things are pretty good, Jeff. How about yourself? How's everything Ver- over in Pittsburgh? Very well. We, uh, I think spring is here. Uh, <gasps> the sun is shining. How exciting. You've, yeah, I'm not getting too excited though. Um, Why? You know, is, is there going to be more be- snow and more cold? You never know. I mean, I think uh, I think we could still have another cold spell coming through, but I'm enjoying the sunshine and the uh, and the warm weather while I can. Um, how about you? Yeah, we have autumn down here in the uh, southern hemisphere, and it is pretty beautiful. I'm looking outside the window right now, and it's a beautiful sunny day, but with that crisp coolness that you get at you know at those transseasonal times of year, which I think is always a nice thing. Yeah, autumn is definitely my favorite season. I love the crispness and the and the uh, uh, having that in the air is super nice. Um, but you have some exciting news. We should we should dive into to <laughs> your little your project. Uh, tell us what's going on in your world there. Oh, yeah. So this is really I'm I'm really excited about this. Ed Rodley and I for some time had bandied about this idea of that we should do a book. Ed would say to me, Suze, we should do a book." And I'd say, that's, that's an awesome idea, but, you know, writing the PhD and doing all of these things, I, I think I was saying yes, but not actually realizing that I was committing to a thing. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> um, but we spoke a little bit about it at MCN, and then mm-hmm. earlier this year, he, Rob Stein from the Dallas Museum of Art wrote some really interesting commentary on post that someone else had written that Ed and I both thought should go out to a wider audience. And we got in contact yeah. with Rob and somewhere how in those conversations, Ed mentioned our plans for doing a book. And Rob's like, well, why don't we, why don't we make this bigger and take this and make it a more expensive project and actually try and play with the affordances of digital technology to come up with something that might work as a digital publishing project that we can also right. then put into the physical world and see what affordances we can explore from both. Mm-hmm. So we have, it's an open project uh, or an open authoring project, I think is, is a good way to describe it. It's, it's, a, it's an experiment in online discourse and publishing at this stage. So we've collected a whole pile of interesting authors who come from diverse backgrounds around the sector and who we think have something interesting to say around the intersection of technology and theory. And we're asking them all in April over a six-week period to put forward an essay on some important issues around this space so that they can talk to one another We're going to have some respondents, but we're also opening the call up for anyone else to contribute. We're using the platform Medium as a way to to collect all these essays together. And because you can put them under hashtags and collections, what we're hoping is that other people will also contribute to the discussion. So we Mm -hmm. start to actually have a really focused discussion during a period of time around theory and technology that has some pre-organized authors, so we know that we've got some some essays in there on some particularly important subjects, but also yeah. that other people can contribute to. It's a very cool project. I love the idea of, of open authorship. I think that's, uh, that's really interesting. Question, though, why, um, why did you decide to use a, a, a third-party platform, platform like Medium rather than hosting on your own blogs. That's, a, that's interesting. Well, part of that is actually because of the open authorship idea. I mean, if we want mm-hmm. people to be able to contribute, we wanted it all to be in a central place so that everyone could yeah. find it. I mean, a lot of the people who we have as authors do write for whether yeah. it's personally or for their institutions. So they often have an outlet, but they all have different audiences. So we mm-hmm. wanted to focus it sort of into a, a neutral space to all of us, but also to have it as a platform so that we could actually invite people to contribute and that they didn't have to sort of send someone an email saying, oh, I would like to contribute a blog post, that they could themselves just be part of the conversation. 
Very cool. I'm um, looking forward to, uh, to to following that and seeing how it how it how it goes. You should put an essay into it, Jeff. And in fact, you know what I'm hoping is that we will get quite a few people who maybe you have your own blog, but maybe people who yeah. don't necessarily have an outlet or who might not regularly want to write might still want to contribute an essay. And I think that's one of the things that makes it interesting that we'll have some people who already have a voice in the sector, but hopefully some people who maybe don't always get to because they don't have their own platform might contribute. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, we'll drop a link to that in the show notes for everyone to check out in advance of the floodgates opening in April, right? <laughs> yes, I'm very excited. I'm a little scared. I mean, we don't know how it's going to work. It is actually, it is an experiment. And the whole time we've sort of been thinking, oh, I hope, I hope this works. I hope people are willing to play along with it. I hope that we, you know, get people on the journey. But I th- we're having fun and yeah. we're learning from the process. So that in itself well, is pretty are- great. Yeah, those are the best kind of projects too. The, the ones that kind of make you nervous a little bit. The ones that, like, <laughs> before you push that publish button or that or that, um, you know, uh, push, get push. Right? I mean, like, that's kind of to me. That's what gets me up in the morning is like having that that thrill of like not knowing something if it's going to work out or not. Um, so absolutely, and I think one of the things that's nice is we are doing this. You know, we're doing this digitally, but we also want to turn it into a publication. So we'll have people comment, and we'll have because Medium allows for notes and comments. So then we can take all of people's ideas and discussions, and that will be then generated into a second essay. So that nice. it's sort of more developed and more thought out. So we have these different layers of publication. But yeah, as you say, there's something really thrilling about trying something out that you don't quite know whether it's going to work. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's a nice segue into our topic for today because um, you know we're we're looking at the economics of free um, yes. and how they relate to museums. Um, and most notably, um, uh, the Dallas Museum of Art is experimenting with with a, a program that's pretty innovative and pretty edgy and pretty, um, w- w- some might say, risky. Um, mm. And uh, so, I mean, I think you know, while it's a different world, your project to to the economics of free, there's that. I think there is that feeling of uncertainty and and. Um, uh, unknowingness, if you will. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And the, being able to see the potential of something, but also not be, not knowing exactly where it's going to take you. I think that's one of the lovely things with the Dallas Museum of Arts um, DMA Friends program is that they started with a pretty good sense of what this might be able to do for the institution. But I think they're discovering more and more as the project actually rolls out. Right. So I know you and I are both super excited to have the guests on this month. We have uh, Max Anderson, uh, the director of the Dallas Museum of Art. Um, um, that museum can be found at uh, dma.org. Um, and we also have uh, Tyler Green, um, the uh, oftentimes outspoken um, uh, art critic uh, from Modern Art Notes. And he has some very... Um, um, interesting opinions about uh, accessibility and and um, lowering barriers to entry to to museums. Right. Yeah. I mean, I actually think this is really nice. As someone who myself is at times a critic, um, I actually think it's really nice to invite sort of inside and outside of voices to a conversation as well, to sort of hear from people who are working within the sector, but also from those who think about the sector a lot but maybe aren't working within it in quite the same way or, you know, who are coming from the outside and looking at the sector. I think that's a, it's a super interesting mix. Yeah, for sure. So uh, without further ado, um, let's hear from uh, Tyler and Max. Max. 
Maxwell L. Anderson became the Eugene McDermott Director of the Dallas Museum of Art in January 2012. Since arriving at the Dallas Museum of Art, he has raised over $38 million for endowment and special projects, secured one of the world's largest private collections of Islamic art for 15-year loan, introduced a novel program of free membership as well as free admission, which is now heralded as a game-changing business model for museums internationally, created a laboratory for innovation, funded online projects to benefit the Dallas Museum of Art and Museums Internationally, devised a new program in painting uh, conservation and constructed a state-of-the-art laboratory, launched a region-wide scientific collaboration amongst six leading art museums and programs in chemistry in the leading research universities of North Texas, and signed a memoranda of understanding with the Republic of Turkey and the Republic of Italy, and is preparing MOUs with other nations as part of an Art for Expertise exchange program named DMX. He serves as chairman of the Dallas Arts District Foundation, overseeing the largest arts district in the United States, and secured a Dallas presentation of the annual New Cities Summit, bringing 1,000 urban planners from some 40 nations to the Dallas Arts District in June 2014. Max, that is a fairly impressive list of achievements for just longer than two years at the DMA. (laughs) Thank you, Sue. Yeah, and it's across so many areas of the museum. When you get into a new museum as director, how do you possibly know where to start? Well, the first thing you have to do is listen because you inherit, in our case, a 111-year-old museum that's had Mm. all sorts of trajectories and passions and mishaps that befall any institution of scale. And you really want to figure out what you could bring to the party, but no less importantly, what the institution needs in the context of its time in history, the market circumstances it has, the strengths of its collection, the, the curatorial and, and other staff strengths, and the board's appetite for innovation mm. and, and change. And I can't say there's a formula for that other than just really listening carefully. <laughs> so, uh, Max, uh in, on this episode of, of Museo Punks, we're talking about the the economics of free. Um, and in your your recent tenure, you've held director positions at Indianapolis Museum of Art, which was free under your leadership, and now the Dallas Museum of Art, where free admission has been introduced under your leadership. Um, obviously, no cost access to art is very important to to you. Why is that? Why does that matter? I look at art museums as a bit different from other cultural destinations and and other institutions in a public realm. I think science museums, everybody wants to go to a science museum. They want to see the dinosaur. They want to be near that remarkable touchstone of geological history. They want to go to a history museum if it means they can go back in time and feel they're in another space and, and place. Because there's no attached anxiety to those visits. For some reason, people think they're going to be tested when they walk into an art museum. They're going to look dumb if they don't know what to ask, what to see. They don't know what to wear. They don't know all sorts of basic things because we have these remarkably precious things and we're very typically proscriptive about behavior. You can't touch, Mm. don't talk too loud, no running. It doesn't sound like fun. So anything you can do to reduce those barriers, I'm all for yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is that you've now done this at more than one institution. How different then is the process? I mean, you've you obviously learned a lot from introducing free admission at the Indianapolis Museum of Art at the IMA. How did you bring that experience or that knowledge to the DMA and how different was the process of introducing this? Well, the two cities are very different. Indianapolis is a a big city in the Midwest, the second biggest city probably after Chicago. And Dallas is one of the four biggest metropolitan areas in the United States. So there's a different scale at work. Mm. And we Mm. in Dallas, we're in downtown. We're in smack in the middle of the financial districts and all the other key areas, or also the anchor tenant of a massive arts district, 65 acres with 11,000 seats distributed among a dozen institutions. So it's a very different animal here. And yet, and yet, in both cases, as is the case with almost all major art museums, other than three we could all think of in Manhattan, there is very little tourism outside of the drive time of a day. And the economics are that 
admission income from general admissions is not a major contributor to most U.S. art museums. It's mm. in the 4% range or less. And in our case, it was 2.7%, the non-ticketed exhibition admission. If you were just paying general admission, it amounted to a 2.7% of a $23 million budget. So it didn't strike me here as earth-shattering to say, hey, why don't we get rid of that 2.7% and make it up in other ways? And the board was prepared to hear that. But also bear in mind, we had been free from uh, the founding of the museum 110 years before up until 2001. Uh, uh, and so uh, I say 2001. Uh, so there was, a, there was a flavor around free that was very much in the DNA of the museum, as is true with right. a lot of municipal art museums. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But with this new introduction of free is a, is a really compelling program you're calling DMA Friends. Um, and uh, for those who may not have heard about DMA friends. Could you just, yeah. you know, explain that briefly? Cause it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, the board had a threshold for 2.7%, but then I said, Hey, you know, there's another 2.5%. Why don't we do away with that too? And that, what is that? I said, that's entry level membership because entry level membership. I pointed out to the sharp pencils in the finance committee here was also not much of a contributor to revenue, but it certainly was a contributor to cost. We had staff associated with the promulgation of this program. We had events. We had foregone the opportunity cost of unsold tickets to members. And if you start running through all the numbers, you end up realizing that under $100, most art museum memberships at best are treading water. They're not contributing to the bottom line. They're paying for uh, the income is, is offsetting expenses that are commensurate with the program. So by doing a one-two punch of saying free admission and free membership, we were setting a new approach for access mm -hmm. and participation. And the premise behind DMA Friends is a simple one. We looked at a company here in town called American Airlines, which is one of the, the most innovative companies in this space of loyalty programs. And we mm -hmm. studied them from afar to say, what is it about airline frequent flyer programs that could be of interest to a frequent visitor to a museum? And how do we incentivize frequent visits how do we incentivize mm -hmm. loyalty, which is what these programs are devised to do? And the currency being instead of money, uh, being participation, being if we encourage people to come more often, we can give them points for their visits and their experiences. And those points can be redeemed not for a seat on an airplane, but for an exhibition ticket, a free parking space, a discount in the store, all the things that one thinks of when you think of entry-level memberships. So mm -hmm. what does the institution get from knowing that, though? Well, we start As in by, from, from yeah. being able to tell exactly who your audience is. What, how yeah. does that change your programming? How does yeah. that impact the institution? Well, we don't know that yet, but I'll, I'll say this. My favorite analogy would be we have a mall in north, the northern part of, a, of our midtown area called North Park Mall. Fantastic mall, filled with art, by the way, that Ray Nasher, who built it, populated with extraordinary masterworks. And they have about 23 million people a year enter that mall. Huh. Mm -hmm. So imagine if what they, they knew is they had 23 million people go to the mall, but they didn't know what those people were spending money on or in which stores. I think that would be pro a problem for the mall. I mean, I, I think it would be a problem for the mall owners to say, well, let's get a different store in here because these guys aren't performing or these guys failed to pay their rent. And mm. what's the sales per customer up there? They know that. They know all this basic information about their visitors. Then you go to an art museum. What do we know? How many warm impulses crossed a threshold? That's what we count. And then we're done. And we have no idea what people are doing once they come inside, what they're experiencing, what they're learning, what they're leaving with, who they are, where they live, what interests and motivates them. So apart from that, we're doing great, you know. We're like that mall that has no idea of sales per square foot, sales per customer. So we're really not doing anything in respect to knowing our visitors. And learning about our visitors seems to me the most basic thing we can do after hanging the art. You know, you hang the art and then you open the doors and all we've been doing is say, hey, look, there are more people in the doors. Right. And mm. the art newspaper dedicates an annual sort of statistical porn edition of how many bodies crossed thresholds. Nobody's asking how important the shows were. 
mm. or what scholarly advances were realized as a function of them, or what people learned, how they affected grades in school. Nobody knows any of that. Nobody knows who the visitors were. Mm-hmm. So I consider it a baseline. We're just at the primordial ooze of starting to understand what museums should be doing with this other part of our mission, which is not the collection, but the public. Right. So, you know, while, while admission and membership um, are, are, are monetarily free under, under the DMA Friends program, uh, you could essentially say that visitors are paying with their data. So do you think that um, uh, institutionally, is there an, is there an equate, uh, do you equate the same level of value between aggregate data and a point of sale transaction or are they are they different to the institution well, differently yeah important? They're, they're different i mean first of all this is an opt-in program you can walk yeah. into the dma today and a cheerful helpful well-informed staffer will approach you and encourage you to join and if you wave them away they will stop molesting you and you can just huh. walk in and be have an experience without this. So this is no, there's no requirement to do this. It's a, right. an effort to seduce, but we give up really fast if there's the slightest uh, disinclination. So we're talking about a percentage of our visitors who are joining as mm-hmm. friends. We're adding about a thousand DMA friends every week, week in, week out. We think we'll crack a hundred thousand by the end of the calendar year fourteen. So. Wow. We think that'll put us in the realm of the top two or three museums in the country in terms of membership. But that's really not the point for us. To your your issue about data, the data that we're starting to gather is the most important part of it is what are people doing after they enter the building? Because we get Mm -hmm. that heat impulse from our thermal camera that a four-legged or two-legged creature has entered the building. And then what we do is we ask people to self-select and describe their experiences by getting points, acknowledging that they've been somewhere or done something. And gradually we're building a map of experience around the visit and what people privilege over other things, people from which zip codes are going to which things. That becomes kind of interesting socioeconomically, but also experientially. We're finding out what exhibits and what activities are having one kind of resonance or another. And asking people to describe, to choose their favorite works of art is developing a whole interesting set of data about things that are surprising us of what, which works people describe as their favorite works. And the natural next question is, oh, okay, I see. You're going to re-engineer the whole museum to focus on what's most popular. The answer is no. We're, we're just trying to learn about our visitors. It doesn't mean we'll do anything differently in what we choose to show necessarily or anything, but we'll learn what's effective in a communication strategy, in a learning strategy, in a participation strategy. And that will affect strategies around what we do. It won't really, I assume, change what we do in programmatic choices about what to show. Because to do otherwise would be to move away from a scholarly research institution that has an educational value, which is what we're about. This is just another form of research. You know, this is, we do research on our collections without blinking an eye. We think nothing of it. We spend copious amounts of time sending curators overseas to look at archives to study works of art but we've never studied our visitors the only time museums typically study their visitors is when they have a big show and they're outperforming their last three years and everybody's excited and there's a fever and you measure that moment which is measuring a fever the fever subsides the data is no longer relevant but that's what you hold on to and you point to as economic impact and it's, largely it's an illusion yeah, I, I mean, it's actually one of the things that is quite interesting. You sort of had the the phrase in there of re-engineering the whole museum. And I actually, I spent some time at the Dallas Museum of Art last year. I came and visited. And one of the things I really noticed was how different... Um, your front of house staff seemed to treat me to compared to some other institutions. It was very welcoming and sort of people um, approached me in different ways and it was very friendly. It wasn't just people acting as security guards. And I guess I'm quite interested as how much things like introducing free admission or free membership then necessarily becomes part of a whole institutional change. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine a typical art museum that charges $10, $20 at the door. The person walking in the door, we hope they're aware of it before they show up so they don't have sticker shock. But they're moving in there for a transaction. They're going to give money and they're going to extract an experience. 
the people who work the front of house are there to ensure that everything's efficient. So we take a very different approach. Efficiency isn't really the point. It's are we a welcoming institution, an unthreatening institution that will reward us with repeat visits? One of the things museums don't like to talk about is repeat visits because it, it would seem that then you have fewer social security numbers crossing the threshold. You have fewer voters. You have whatever it is you might be afraid you would reveal. I'm very happy if the 600,000 visitors this year turn out to be 280,000 people who came two and a half times or whatever it would be. It's not going to be for us a crushing <laughs> discovery. And whereas it might be for an institution that is so dependent on earned revenue from cultural mm. tourism, which eventually we hope to have here. We hope that the city is growing so rapidly and 70% of the people living in Dallas are not from Dallas originally. So it's, there's no question we are absorbing a growth in population and a change. But the premise of cultural tourism is probably a ways away before we could say, as the Guggenheim or the Met or the Modern might say, 50, 60, 70, 80% of our visitors are from somewhere far away. Mm-hmm. So, again, I, I don't measure the success of a visit to be a function of somebody being a stranger. To me, that's why we call it friends. We want them to be friends, and friends don't typically have transactions, and they don't typically say, I'll see you once, and I won't see you again. So that was the the (laughs) nomenclature was intentional to build a relationship with people, with individuals, not with attendees. Yeah, that's interesting because... I was going to ask you about, um, you know, the the need or desire to convey or maybe even transcend the idea of value uh, outside of a paid admission for the visitor. And it seems like with this with this kind of human approach of friend and relationship, it's almost like you're transcending that idea of value that my visit was worth this amount of dollars at admission. Is that fair sure, to say? Sure. Well, also, we're a charity. My development office yeah. hates to have me say that, but we are we depend on the kindness of strangers. Yeah. We depend on the kindness of friends, especially. And when we got a $9 million grant a few weeks ago to support this program, that's a hell of a lot of tickets I don't have to sell. But mm. more importantly, it proves that people of, of means respond to an institution that's seeking to fulfill a public purpose. And that ultimately is what the tax system is based upon, and what our educational purpose is rooted in. And institutions that fall in love with the commercial model end up changing the entire quality of the experience mm-hmm. and premises of architecture, of the welcoming staff, of the mechanics of a visit to have throughput. And ultimately, I, I don't think museums, art museums should be about throughput. We should be about a chance encounter with a work of art or a person in front of a work of art that helps you think differently about your world. And you can't measure that through an admissions fee. And I do believe that the most important thing we have in a business model is to be a successful charity and not to do things that are going to jeopardize our tax-exempt status by, for example, monetizing the collection or renting art or creating relationships that are commercial in ways that would cause someone to look freshly at our charter and say, this portion of your activities are unrelated to your business income, and therefore they're taxable. Mm. And therefore, by the way, anybody who supports it is not going to get a charitable receipt for their donation. That's the risk, I think, a lot of the commercial activities of the last generation, certainly in the U.S. and increasingly in Europe, are, are creating a problem around the perception of what a museum is for and how you measure its success. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that's quite interesting for me about the program, but also how you're introducing it, is that it's not just to the DMA. You're also introducing it across the sector in some ways. I know that the Dallas Museum of Art recently got substantial support from the Institute of Museums and Library Studies from the IMLS to extend Friends Program to some partner institutions. So the Denver Art Museum, the LA County Museum of Art. So... In Minneapolis. Is it a prerequisite then of these institutions to similarly have free admission or f- like does a free membership program work if you don't have free admission yeah. or h- how does that relationship work? Because we're talking about quite big commercial models here and then right. or sort of one part of that. 
Well, first of all, I, I would say what gets me up in the morning in this profession, what is it that we're doing here that could be useful for the field? Mm. Because I've been in the game a little too long to get excited about just what excites me or my department or what, whatever might happen locally. I want to think, what is it that we could do together as a field, as a profession, that would move the meter on our success as institutions that have an educational purpose? And so from the very beginning, the assumption was that this is really calling the question. The DMA Friends Program is calling the questions on the very business model that museums have been reliant on for a generation, which is big memberships equals success and Mm. big attendance equals success. And I don't believe either of those is other than a symptom of success. (laughs) So Mm. for me, having a program that other institutions find attractive and who could adopt some portion of it, and all of us could learn together about achieving success in our mandates as collecting and presenting and and preserving institutions that educate and inform people's lives is the goal. It's not that we have more visitors next year. I just, you know, I want to balance the budget, which the Dallas Museum of Art has done for 17 years straight. That's pretty basic. I want to make sure that we have robust thoughts about what we're going to undertake in the future. But I think much more significant than any of that is that we're relevant in people's lives. And if instead we reduce our mandate to getting more widgets out the door, more people in the door, then we're we're losing track of our purpose. And ultimately, we will be swept up in a very larger societal challenge, which is the mounting irrelevance of the arts in American society. And by working together with other institutions, I think we have a better case for reclaiming that educational research focus that museums should have. Hmm. So this idea of, of free or uh, increased accessibility, it, it extends past the admissions desk. And I think one aspect, you know, as a technologist looking and talking to you and, and following your career, I can, I can, I can look and see that another aspect of, of, of this that has followed you is, is the level to which you, your institutions participate uh, within like the open source community and a lot of the work that Rob Stein did both at IMA and now, now at, at DMA. Um, and this is kind of a different spin uh, on the economics of free. Can you speak to the interest and importance of an institution not only making use of these tools, but actually contributing something back to the community, much in the same way the free admission is doing, but on the technological level? Yeah, I'm, you see, I'm long in the tooth. So I, I went to a conference in Cambridge, England in 1993 on multimedia in art museums. And it, I was the only museum director. And what I came back to the States from that was I was realizing, working in a university museum as I was at the time, that we had this thing called uh, a network. And wow, what could I do with that? So at the Carlos Museum in Atlanta, we built, with a Mosaic browser, we built a website, one of the first, I think, 15 in the world. And we're starting to figure out what could it mean if we had other museums have websites that could talk to each other. So I've been thinking about this since my first real brush with, with the Internet in the early 90s. And I would say over, overall, the projects I've been associated with, like the Museum Educational Site Licensing Project in the mid-90s that begat Amico, the Art Museum Image Consortium, was an important way of thinking about data management in consortial terms, not one museum at a time, which was just going to replicate volumes on a shelf. And that's why we launched Art Babel at the Indianapolis mm-hmm. Museum of Art, was to think, how do we aggregate mm-hmm. video content instead of having one museum at a time or one channel at a time? And this is just the latest way of, for me, looking at harnessing the opportunity that technology affords us in being smarter about how we work together to serve a broader public, to fulfill an educational mandate. So it's really, it's pretty simple-minded stuff. It just starts with not what am I going to do for me, but what might we collectively attempt to engineer through technology that, that an analog world didn't allow for. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting to hear you talk about so many of these things being collective efforts rather than sort of lone museum efforts. But I suppose there are hurdles that get in the way of this, both from a sector level and at an individual institutional level. What do you see as being some of the big hurdles for us 
both as a sector but also for individual institutions that are interested in adopting these kinds of free processes or, or things that give away their resources in a way that maybe others don't? Well, remember that up until the King Tut show in 1978 in the U.S., museums had a fairly broad understanding that their obligations were to bring in art and show it to people and you know, think about their institutional resources in a way that wasn't indexed to a, a turnstile. And the turnstile has really changed the way we've thought for the last generation. I think undoing that is going to be a, a ways away unless there is a strong business case to be mm-hmm. made for it. It can't be out of some goodwill or a sense, yeah, that's probably better for us all. There has to be a monetary benefit for museums to go free. And in my view, that monetary benefit ties back to increased philanthropy. Right and to how new data can help us be more effective in serving our publics. That effectiveness, for example, when I, when I got here, we had, I think, 8,000 programs a year. Now, I'm counting every tour, and I'm counting every interaction uh, with the public by our education division, our curatorial division, our library, and so on. So it's not really a fair number. But I asked a, a question, what would happen if we had 5,000? Would, would anybody notice well, you know, we went to 5,000. I don't think too many people have noticed. And the reason is that we hadn't at the time analyzed what these programs were achieving. We, everybody in museums is full of ideas and excitement, and we could do this, and we could offer this, and we could have this tour, and we could have this lecture, and we could have this series, and this seminar, and this panel discussion. Typically, we don't ever ask, so what did that do for us? Yeah. And I would rather have that be the embarrassing question at the beginning of a planning cycle. What are we going to try to do, not just because we can do it, but that will move our meter in our mission, in the service to research or education or the promulgation of ideas or a better understanding of our public? Show me how that's going to work before we say yes to every good idea that comes down the pike. And I think if that becomes more of a reflex, that's a very business-minded way of thinking. You think boards would love that. They'd say, oh, yeah. Let's get some metrics here. And instead, everybody tolerates our do-goodism in museums where we want everybody to be happy. We want every staff member to follow their bliss. And we want every program to have a life. And we never kill programs even if they're flailing because you never know. Maybe they'll be better next year. Very, I would say, laissez-faire. And it's not very businesslike. So I think you could make a case that going free is a way of toughening your resolve to be businesslike. How does that sound? That's great. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Max, I I think we're going to wind this up now, but thank you so much for this. This has been so informative. Now, if people want to find you on the internet, if they want to keep a track of what's happening either with you or at the Dallas Museum of Art, where can people find you online? Well, on Twitter, I'm at Max Anderson USA, and that's the easiest way. And online, I... What do I do? You know, I, I try not to use email because it's, it's punishing. Uh, a few hundred of those a day, and I need, I need a scotch every evening. So Twitter would be my preferred connection to everybody. That's, that's, I think that's Twitter awesome. is I th- true for all. <laughs> I, think, I think every museum director should tweet. <laughs> well, Absolutely. my family doesn't necessarily agree with you, but right. my, my son who's starting NYU in the fall in the film school there, he tolerates my tweeting with generosity and love, but I, I'm not sure he understands why I think it's important because he's so far past that. That is so old, <laughs> old news for him. Yeah. Well, I love it. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Max, and we look forward to uh, following the progress uh, down there in Dallas and elsewhere. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Tyler Green writes and edits the Modern Art Notes, produces and hosts the Modern Art Notes podcast, and is the columnist for Modern Painters Magazine. Green has written for numerous magazines, including Fortune, Condé Nast Portfolio, and Smithsonian. He has contributed op-eds to newspapers such as the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Wall Street Journal. Tyler, thanks so much for uh, being a guest today on Museopunks. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so in, in this episode, we're, we're talking about the, the economics of free and how they relate to museums. Um, and, you know, during the 
last few years, uh, you've argued fairly persistently for museums to offer free admission. Um, why does this matter? Well, I think it depends on whether or not one's view of art museums is just to show the stuff rich people bought, mm -hmm. or if one thinks of them um, or as tourist attractions, places for upper middle class and wealthy people to go to as they gallivant around the world, or whether or not they're community institutions involved in research, education, um, preservation and conservation of our shared cultural, uh, particularly visual cultural heritage. Um, and I think of them in that second way. And if you think of them in that second way, I think you inevitably get to the idea that um, our shared cultural heritage should be available to as many people as possible. Um, and the most effective way to do that um, is to lower every possible barrier to whoever might enter that institution. Um, it's not a new model. It's not a new idea. Museums have been free. Many museums have been very free for a very long time. Um, and, of course, it's a model that works um, in the literary world when it comes to um, written record of our cultural heritage uh, libraries. Okay. So, I mean, we're talking that obviously this is a model that does exist, but you are still reasonably sort of persistent, I suppose, in, in pushing it forward. What reaction do you get, um, I suppose, inside the sector, but also outside the sector, to, this, to these discussions about museums being free? Enormous agreement. <laughs> mm. um, I, I don't think there is a, a – the only um, places you really – I really hear blowback on the idea, and it, I, I should note, it's not like I'm a lone wolf on this. The overwhelming trend in American art museums in recent years has been – to lower barriers to entry, not to to raise them. Um, I mean, I can't think of a museum in recent years that's gone free and then revoked it. Mm -hmm. um, but but you know, the, the dissenting voices come um, almost exclusively from the two major American tourism cities, uh, New York and San Francisco, where the art museums operate more as tourist attractions uh, than community institutions, or at least as much as tourist attractions as they do as community institutions. And their thought is, well, all these tourists are coming to our city. Why aren't we you know, picking up 25 bucks a pop from them? Um, and I'm uh, not totally... I mean, I hear that argument. I think there's room for museums in San Francisco and New York and maybe Chicago a little bit to to be a little more flexible with with the way they handle admission. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't uh, charge city residents or you know five county area residents or however you want to define it a certain rate and 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 tourists another. Um, I, right, I that's something quite similar. That but... thing to do. That that happens at the um, at the Museum of Old and New Art in Tasmania, in Australia. We have, uh, I believe, Tasmanian uh, sort of people from Tasmania are given free entry, but people who are tourists are charged. So I think that's a similar model to what you're talking about there. There's a version of that model in Detroit as well, where members were residents of the counties that uh, where their property taxes contributed to um, the operating budget of the Detroit Institute of Arts visit the DIA for free, whereas people who live outside those counties, whether it's elsewhere in Michigan, whether it's from Florida, whatever, um, pay an admissions price. And I think that's a, a really good model. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so, Tyler, in a recent post on Modern Art Notes, um, you argued that that more museums in the USA will be free and soon. Um, great post, by the way. But what makes you say this? Well, I think that the primary – I think there are two major reasons why art museums are, are going to be more free and sooner. Um, one kind of a hearts and minds reason, reason I think, uh, to many – I think many museums are – I think good museum directors focus their boards around the missions of those museums and, and can make a case for it and, and often are. Um, I mean, I don't want to go down the whole list of museums where directors have made that case to their boards in recent years. Um, but, you know, Baltimore is a good example where the directors at the Walters and the BMA, you know, both got behind that and took that message to their boards and got um, their county governments on board, got their state government on board, got their donors on board and have turned it into a revenue and have turned going free, dropping admissions prices into a revenue generation opportunity mm -hmm. by working with 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 government and private partners. Um, hmm. But the, the other reason is what the, the Dallas Museum of Art is, is trying out with um, 
kind of changing or attempting to change how art museums think about their relationships to their audience, to uh, their members, what what different membership levels and, and the corporate and philanthropic communities in their cities. Um, and realizing that if they can kind of build uh, databases of information, kind of the same types of databases of information that we're used to companies gleaning in the in the digital sphere, that they can more effectively communicate with people who donate money to charities like art museums. Um, and when they can more effectively communicate with those people, they can further incentivize those people to donate to those museums and to make uh, you know the charity, the art museum, more accessible to more people. Yeah, absolutely. Does that, how do you feel about that as in the idea that your data might be being used just like uh, online to... Well, it's not just like online. It's, you know, what the DMA is building databases of non-personally identifiable information, as I understand it. Right. Um, And online, we are giving up personally identifiable information. Right. So it's, it's, it's cleaner of personal information data than what we give up online. Okay. Hmm. So do you feel differently about it in that case because it's not individually identifiable? Um, no, I think it's a perfectly good, I, I think it makes all the sense in the world. I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, I would rather, I would rather my local art museum have uh, spare metadata on me than for Google to have, personally identifiable metadata on me hmm. yeah um i know i would too <laughs> <laughs> um so so tyler you know what what are the barriers preventing institutions from doing this um you know pursuing this strategy yeah that's a key question one of not not every director believes in free as much as say during bulger in baltimore or max anderson in dallas um or, or as the people who are opening the new uh, Broad art, uh, art Museum in Los Angeles, um, and so it does kind of require directors to take a personal interest in the issue, and and you know some just don't care enough mm. to, to to prioritize it. They have other things that they're more interested in. Um, the um, other thing is we're talking about. Uh, a, a, a hidebound conservative part of the 501c3 world. Um, and technology is, uh, of this sort anyway, is is new. And not only do you kind of have to have a generation-spanning conversation with a board and, and, the, and the C-suiters at, at an art museum, um, but you have to educate them on... Uh, everything from the quality of the data to the usefulness of the data to uh, the PR benefits or not of the data. And and I think that that can be a slow conversation to have. But I think also, you know, for art museums that are maybe smaller, and I'm just pulling a number out of thin air here, like, you know, $15 million in operating budget a year, you may not have the breadth and depth of staff to have expertise when it comes to uh, the range of technology you need to have and utilize to glean and maximize use of, of this kind of data. Um, the DMA program addresses that to s- some extent, maybe even a substantial extent, because they're offering uh, the software that runs their everything uh, is available as, as, as open source um, and free. Um, but I guarantee you that if you go into a lot of art museum C-suites and start talking about open source software, you're going to have a lot of people blinking back at you wanting to talk about Marsden Hartley. <laughs> um, so it, it, you know, I, I think, I think these are, you know, I think these are probably the major barriers. Um, although I think there's probably just a certain old school, yeah. I get 3% of my annual revenue from admissions. I need it. And a conversation that, that happens too. Yeah. So you know, I'm so glad you're, you you decided to talk with us today because I, I'd, I'd like to get you out of your critic hat and into your museum enthusiast hat, and I think I think we're doing that. But um, you know, free access is important to you. But but what what are you willing to pay for it? Obviously, your data. Um, m- maybe how about limited services or any type of other 
concession that a museum might have to make in order to to flip the switch on free admission why would a museum have to make any concession and services to gain more revenue by mm. opening the door for free um than uh than not right. i don't i don't you know i i don't um we're talking art museums typically get three four five percent of their annual revenue infinitesimal amounts from admissions fees mm-hmm. um we're talking you know if you uh there are two questions about giving up three four or five percent of you know somewhere in that range of your of your revenue one uh how much are you going to make it up by doing higher visitor numbers and thus having people visiting your cafeteria and your store and your parking lot and whatever else um to begin with, you know, and you're going to make some of that up right there. Secondly, um, which which is more important, a couple percentage points or or your mission, which is to you know at art museums to, um, you know, every art museum has a slightly different mission statement, but just about every art museum has a mission to, you know, provide art and education to the broadest possible audience about the cultural history of the world and the region and so on and so forth. Um, and and are you really going to? Isn't it more important to fulfill your mission to the hilt as as, as as thoroughly as you can, to to share what you have with the broadest number of people in your community, um, at the expense of one or two percentage points of annual revenue? I mean, that's easily make upable somewhere else, especially a, a good director and a good board, um, uh, sitting around and talking about how to do that. That's you know. That's what donations to charity are for. Right. I I suppose one of the things I find quite interesting in this is this idea of other revenue streams of where else the money comes from. You've identified some, which is that once you have more people in, you'll get more revenue through the cafe and through the shop. But we've just had a really interesting situation in Australia where with less than a month to go before the Sydney Biennale is about to open, a number of artists have pulled out over concerns um, about the ties that one event sponsor has had to offshore detention centres following the death of an asylum seeker here in Australia. And one of the, I suppose, one of the issues that I become really interested in is that we expect museums and arts organisations to consider the ethical implications of their funding and sort of what they do with it. But is it possible that a a decision to stay free or the pressure to be free could mean that institutions then have less flexibility with their funding and where else it comes from? Could it become harder for institutions to say no to other types of money uh, in order to sort of recoup the possibility of lost funds? No. We're talking about a couple percentage points of annual operating revenue. No. I mean... The over, you know, the American art museums uh, are are philanthropic organizations that do the mass. Uh, you know, most of their annual revenue comes from private donors and foundations. Um, corporate philanthropy comes next. I mean, it's different at every museum, so I'm obviously painting with a broad brush here. But um, you know, we're talking about one or or, or, or two points. I mean, we're talking, you know, for a museum like MoMA, we're talking about you know a million dollars a year for a museum like. Um, Yale County Museum. We're talking about six or seven hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, you're not. I mean, you know, we're not talking about mm. a significant amount of revenue, right? So, you know, it's kind of diverting a little bit. The economics of free. Um, you know, we've been speaking about in terms of of admissions and 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 that kind of thing. But you you mentioned open source software before, and and. And that type of accessibility. How important is it to you that that this idea of of access and the economics of free, as we're calling them, translate to, to digital assets like high resolution images of collection objects or open source software? I think there's a mission orientation correlation, which might be the worst phrase ever, between um, you know that comes into play here. The leadership. Art museums led by people, both at the staff level and at the board level, I think providing access to cultural objects and our cultural history and our, particularly our visual cultural history, um, is is an important mission. Um, reasonably often, 
tend to extend that focus to both the physical domain, you know, mm-hmm. the bricks and mortar, and the digital domain, where where you might uh, be able to download uh, anything from um, the scholarship and research published by that museum or uh, high-resolution images of um, copyright-cleared um, artworks in that museum's collection. Um, and there's a pretty good overlap there. Yeah. Um, this obviously applies significantly less to contemporary art museums where you have a different range of copyright issues. But mm-hmm. to a museum like the Metropolitan or the Yale University Art Gallery or the Getty, um, you know, uh, two, of those three mu- th- two of those three museums are free. The third has a suggested admissions charge only. So it's mostly free. Um, free if you want it to be. Um, you know, and you see how at those museums, particularly at Yale and the Getty, they consider the bricks and mortar free and, and your creative commons world free to be two halves of the same coin. Um, and I think that's probably where we're more and more going as well. Right. Because you were talking before about, I suppose, a relationship between Free and technology, you were sort of talking about with looking at DMA Friends, that there is this capacity that the technology is making free possible in different ways. Do you think that it is some of this pressure um, to be public is coming from the sort of the pressure to be free online as well? I hope so, right? I mean, I hope so. I think that would be great if... um the kind of libertarian ethos that that is so prominent in the digital domain kind of worked its way down the hallway into other parts of the museum. Um, I I I think that that would I think some of that's generational. Yeah. Um, the people you have working at most art museums um, in positions of respons- responsibility on the digital side are kind of steeped in the thirty year long open access ethos of, of the digital world more than they are in the kind of buttoned up art historical world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that's probably where, where some of that cross pollination um, comes from. I mean, in most art museum, you know, most art museums where I know a bunch of people, um, it is, um, you know, the most ardent advocates of, of, of free, both across bricks and mortar and across cable. Um, are are kind of in two places the education departments um and in the digital departments you know Mm -hmm. whether that's people who work on the website or the people who work with collection images online or people who work with digital technologies and say conservation um or wherever i mean i think I, i i do think that um that's probably an area where uh art museums with significantly empowered digital departments um learn from them so, Tyler, this is obviously a um, a very popular issue, um, most recently with, with DMA's program and some of the other um, museums you mentioned. Um, and, you know, I think as we progress along, along the path, there's going to be a lot of, of developments here in, in, in the future. Um, so... You know, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us today. If if a, a listener wanted to connect with you online or find out, um, you know, more about uh, your thoughts on this particular issue, where might they be able to connect with you online? Oh, Twitter is probably the easiest place. <laughs> um, I'm at Tyler Green DC, um, and I'm there a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. And um, uh, we look forward to uh, to following you both online and in print. Thanks so much for having me. Great subject. So that was super interesting to me, Jeff. I really enjoyed making both of those interviews, actually. I found so much to think about. I know this this whole topic is so fresh, and um, uh, it's definitely an area that um, I know for a fact that 
that many museums are are looking at and trying to figure out. So it's really great to have the have the um, the point of view from Max, you know, someone who's doing it, um, and and then also Tyler, someone f- from the outside who has um, who can kind of provide a little different take on things. Totally. I mean, for me, it's really interesting coming from Australia. So many of our museums and art galleries are free anyway, because yeah. a lot of them have quite good government funding. The idea for me of paid institutions is actually almost the rarity. But I still think there's opportunity for our institutions to leverage things like what what Max is doing with DMA Friends, because it's a free membership program, not just free entry. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and also the the kind of personification of the institution with with even the words like friends and mm. relationships. Um, I think that's really big. I think that's um, that goes a long way into establishing this ongoing um, relationship with a visitor, right? I mean, um, totally. And even just in terms of how you think about it internally, if you're thinking about it as a relationship and thinking about repeat visitation rather than total visitation. That's actually a really different way of thinking about the numbers through the through the door because it's not just about well what's how how many numbers but actually how often do we have people visiting and and what can we do to promote people to come more than once so that it's a real lifelong engagement. Yeah, for sure, um, and it was also um, great for for. For us, uh, having our first director on the show. I know. Um, I'm pretty excited about that, actually. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it's the first of, of many more to come. Uh, I think that would be but, great. Um, it's lovely. I mean, we're now having curators and directors and conservators. I like that we're starting, you know, we started out thinking of this as largely a digital project, and we're yeah. actually starting to scan the full gamut of the sector, and I think that's a really lovely thing. Yeah, me too. Um, so, listeners, if you're interested in anything we discussed on this episode with, with Max and Tyler, um, the show notes and all the pertinent information can be found at museopunks.org slash 14, episode 14. Um, Suze, uh, where can people catch up with you on the interwebs? On the interwebs. Uh, Twitter's probably the easiest, which is at ShinesLike, um, but... There is also my blog, which is museumgeek.wordpress.com. Jeffrey, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at staticmade.com and at staticmade on Twitter. Um, With that, Suze, it was wonderful, and I look forward to uh, next month. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, Jeff. I will talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.